we're continuing our series through the letter of First Corinthians. Um, and so, starting in chapter 8, Paul has been addressing the same issue, eating food sacrificed to idols. And so, the question is, should a Christian eat meat or food that has been sacrificed to idols? And again, we look at the surface level, and most of us would say, yeah, I really don't struggle with that. That's not an issue that is really relevant to me in my day, because there are no, uh, there's not many temples where meat's being sacrificed to idols. But the way Paul uh, really addresses it is, instead of like kind of jumping out of the gates uh, saying who's right and who's wrong and people taking sides he, he really says you know what the most loving thing to consider is not whether it is right or wrong but what's more important is loving your brother and sister that is more important than your so-called freedoms or your so-called rights and so last week uh, Paul used his own life as an example that there are times when we give up some of our rights and some some of our rights are even God-given rights for the sake of the gospel where Paul says like I have every right biblically for me to raise support from you and yet I chose not to claim that right because I did not want the gospel to be hindered and so we learned last week that Christian freedom doesn't mean we do whatever we want to do but rather it means that we are free to give up some of our rights for the sake of of the gospel that the gospel was far more important far more precious far more lasting and enduring and rewarding than our own rights here on this earth and now we get to this the the third part as paul is addressing the issue of should we eat food sacrificed to idols now if you remember if you've been following us in this series and even if you haven't i'll quickly catch you up here um every issue that paul's addressing the main message he's continually communicate to the church in the issues that he's dealing with is this one truth. Because you are God's holy people, you must live like you are God's holy people. In other words, because God has made us holy positionally, before him we stand before God holy, we must live as if we are God's holy people. That means we must pursue holiness. So in other words, the truth that he's constantly summarizing and just going back to, we must become what we are in Christ. If we've been made holy, we must then become holy. And so in our text today, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see Paul's going to address why it's so important for Christians to live like Christians. And the reason why we as Christians must live like Christians is because eternity is at stake. And so really the, the question I want us to kind of walk out of here is that as we look in the mirror, if you are a Christian, the question you have to ask yourself is, am I living like one? Am I becoming what I am in Christ? If I'm God's holy people, am I pursuing holiness? Now, I'm going to warn you in this text, no pun intended, this text is a warning here. Now, I know for us as a church, especially with our theological conviction, our distinction, and here's our theological conviction, our distinction, like we believe in eternal security, that we can have assurance in Jesus Christ, that those who are truly in Christ will persevere through the end. This is what we believe. That is what makes us distinct from other churches because we believe the Bible teaches that. But here's the problem for us with sometimes with that theological conviction. 
we come to passages like this that gives a, a, a harsh warning. Watch out so you don't be disqualified. And what we have a tendency to do is just kind of put that warning to the side and just kind of claim to our theological conviction. And what I want us to do is I don't want us to abandon our theological conviction because Scripture clearly teaches it. But what I want us to do is take these warnings serious. Let's just not just kind of run over and say, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's see it for what they are. There are warnings there are lights that are flashing, and let's look internally and ask ourselves, if I am in Christ, am I living like one who is in Christ? So, so let's look at our, our, our text, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. He says this, Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receive the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So, so right off the bat, Paul uses a metaphor, that of sports. And, and the point of the metaphor, what he's doing is every athlete that competes, competes to, to win. Like I know for us, it's foreign in our culture because uh, for us, like athletes, we just kind of compete to have fun. But when Paul is writing about athletes, he's not thinking about having fun. He's thinking about these athletes are putting themselves under strict discipline and strict control and training so that they could win the prize. And so what does an athlete do to compete at the highest level to make sure that they are the best and win the rights? Well, Paul tells us, look at verse 25. What does an athlete do to win the prize? Verse 25 says this, that they, now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. Now, that, that verb, that phrase, exercise self-control in the Greek means to, to keep one's emotions, to keep one's impulses or desires under control, to control oneself and to abstain. And so the athlete that Paul has in mind is that of an Olympic athlete. It is interesting, the Olympic Games started in 770 around there BC, and then it continued into the 300 AD, and then, so, so the Olympics athletes have been around, and then the modern day athletes, I think, became, uh, Olympics became and uh, started again in the early 1900s. But, but the idea that, that Paul has in mind is these Olympic athletes that are, that are gathering, and they had these rep- reputation of being the most self-disciplined and exercising the most self-control in every aspects in their lives, even in that of sex and diet. Like, like according to, to some resources, these athletes would not have intercourse, eat meat, or drink wine for 10 months prior to the race. Why? Because they believe that those activities might hinder their performance. 
So they are going to put themselves in such strict discipline and self-control that they're going to deny themselves of these things to make sure that their body is operating at the most peak performance so that they could ultimately win the prize. And so what motivated these athletes to exercise such self-discipline and such self-control that they would deny themselves for 10 months of some of these so-called luxuries and pleasures of the world. Paul says this in verse 25. Why are they doing this? They're doing it to receive a perishable crown. In other words, the prize for winning uh, the games really was a crown made of plants, not a whole lot of money. Think about the irony here. You have an athlete who is training and who is putting himself under strict self-control, strict self-discipline that he's abstaining of certain things for 10 months, training night and day, waking up before everybody is awake, going to bed before everybody goes to bed, abstaining from certain social things, pushing their bodies to the limit just so that they can win a crown made of plants. That's crazy, right? At least in our culture we have money, but what happens to money? It's like plants. It withers away. But then Paul kind of like adds a twist. He says, they do that for a plant crown. We do it for what? For an imperishable crown. And I think the subtle point that Paul is making is if these athletes are exercising and pushing their bodies to the limit with self-discipline and self-control to win a perishable crown, a plant crown, how much more should we exercise and push our bodies to the limit where we exercise self-discipline and self-control to receive what? An imperishable crown. An eternal life, inheriting the kingdom of God. And Paul says, because of that imperishable crown, because of that eternal life, inheriting the kingdom of God, this is why I run the race. This is why I don't just run aimlessly. I have a goal. I don't just beat the air like an unskilled boxer missing the mark, but rather I fix my eyes on the prize. I run the race to win. And when I'm boxing, he changes the metaphor. I don't box like an unskilled boxer, kind of missing the target, but every single jab that I take, I fix my eyes on the target like a skilled boxer, making sure that every punch and every blow is right on target. Why? Because of the prize that is waiting for me and so how does Paul run how does he box to win the prize look at verse 27 instead I discipline my body and bring it under strict control the Greek word for discipline 
I know it's a curse word in today's culture. It means to, to punish. It means to treat roughly or torment. And the Greek word for, for self-control means to enslave and it means to subjugate. And again, what's the metaphor Paul is using? The metaphor Paul is using is that of sports. So Paul doesn't have in mind as some of the monks did where they kind of physically torture their body so that they can become more spiritually mature. That, that's not the idea that Paul had in mind, but rather he had the idea of that of an athlete. What does an athlete do? They torture their bodies. They beat their bodies by running an extra mile where everybody gives up, by waking up before everybody wakes up, by lifting more weights than most people can do, where they find themselves so much in pain that they jump in an ice bath that's excruciating just so that their muscles can get healed faster and become stronger. Like if you think about exercising, you're tearing muscles. It is a violent activity that you're participating. And that's the idea that Paul has in mind. Mind. an athlete that is pushing himself to the very limits denying himself of certain things so that he can win the prize i am putting myself i'm disciplining myself and putting it under strict control and why does he do it why does he discipline his body beat up his body and subjugate and enslave his body he says in verse 27, the second part, so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now that word disqualify, I think is very important in the text because what that word means in the Greek, it means not standing the test of time. It does not mean like disqualifying, like if, you, if you've run um, track and field and you run 100 meters or 400 meters, you have to stay in your lane, and if your foot touches the line, guess what? You're disqualified. Or if you're a boxer and you box below the bout, guess what? You're disqualified because you made a mistake. That's not the word that Paul has in mind. But the word that Paul has in mind is that of not standing the test of time. And that word is used seven times in the New Testament. And each time that word is used, it's contrasted with that of genuine faith. So in other words, what Paul is saying, I am disciplining myself, I am putting myself under strict self-control so that my faith will endure and my faith remain genuine. Other parts and passages where that word is used, uh, 2 Timothy 3 verse 8, it says this, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. In other words, what's, what's he implying in this text? These people were not exercising self-discipline and self-control, but what did they do? They opposed Moses. And in their behavior and in how they lived their lives, they showed that their faith is not really genuine. Now, I know here, here's a question we all have in this text, because here's the warning. What's the warning? I discipline myself. I put myself under self-control so that I may not be disqualified. 
So does that mean Paul has a fear that his faith is not genuine? He's doing all of these things to prove to himself that his faith is real? No. Because in other parts of, 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 of Scripture, does Paul not tell the church to test your faith? Does Peter not tell the believers when he writes to the scattered church, confirm your calling and your election? In other words, like look into the mirror. Like, like, do some self-investigation. Like, am I genuinely trusting Christ? Am I genuinely Christian? Am I genuinely in Christ? Like, that's a, a, a warning. That's a time for us to kind of, like, check out our hearts. And again, in this metaphor that Paul is using of running the race and boxing the match, again, Paul is not competing against other athletes here. He's not saying, you know, I have to become the best because there's only so many people in heaven, and so I need to outrun at least some of you guys so that I can make it in. But who's Paul competing against? He's competing against himself because Paul knew that one of his greatest enemies is who? Himself. Like, like, I know the world says love yourself, and in a sense, yeah, maybe that's true, but you know who's your greatest enemy? You. You know who lies to yourself more? You. Paul knew that he still had a sinful nature. And even though, as Matt said, and, and during our time of confession, even though we've been set free from the, the bondages and the power of sin, what is still here? The very presence of sin. Even though Paul is in Christ in a new creation, this, this already and the not yet, he still has this sinful nature. And Paul understands that if he does not exercise self-discipline and self-control, that means he might engage in sin. And that sin can take such deep roots in him that it begins to characterize his life. And then he refuses to repent from it and again Paul says I'm disciplining myself I'm exercising self-control is he doing this on his own strength no he's doing it in light of the strength that God provides through the saving work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit See, so one of the things we have to understand, uh, uh, the, the tension, and I think Philippians just do such a great job in kind of giving us these true, two truths when it comes to our salvation. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says this, work out your salvation with, with fear and trembling. Okay, so what's the command for the church in Philippi? What must you do with the salvation you have received? Work it out. How? With fear and and trembling. In other words, this gift that you have received, you don't just put it on the shelf and kick back and relax and say, my salvation is secure. I'm just going to cruise through life. But what does Paul say? No, Paul says, take that salvation that you have received and exercise it in such a way with fear and trembling that it is so fragile and so precious that your life depends on it. And so we take that verse and we do what with it? We apply it. We work it out. Are we the only ones doing it? No, but look at verse 13, which is, is, is my favorite. It's like, yeah, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it says, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. What do you do? 
work out your salvation. What does God do? God is working in you and through you, both to will and to work according to his purpose. So in other words, like as Paul is disciplining himself and exercising self-control, is he doing it on his own strength? No, he's doing it in light of the strength that God has provided through his son Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul is disciplining himself and exercising self-control, he's doing it in light of the gospel promises he received. Like Paul's not doing these things in order for God to accept them. He's doing these things because God has already accepted him. Paul knows that him working out his salvation is not going to accomplish anything because Jesus has already accomplished everything. So Paul does these things in light of what Jesus has accomplished. Paul is doing these things knowing in confidence that he who began a good work in him is going to bring it to completion. Paul is exercising self-discipline and self-control knowing that in Romans 8, nothing can separate him from the love of God. And that is the tension that we have to understand. Now, can a person put so much self-discipline and so, so self-control that they turn to themselves and, and become their own saviors? Yeah, and that is a great danger. And that's why we have to do self-control and self-discipline in light of the cross of Christ and what Jesus has accomplished and the promises that we have in God. But can a person who receives such a wonderful salvation not exercise it? No. You must exercise. It's been freely given to you if you understand what you have been given. And that's why Paul says, I run that race. I exercise as a skilled boxer, discipline my body, exercise self-control so that I will not be disqualified, so that my faith will persevere through the very end. And it's very similar as he talked in all the other, the other epistles where he says, put to death the flesh. In other words, kill sin constantly. Say no to it, but then also put on the new nature. Put on Christ. Remind yourself of who Christ is and what he's done for you. So, so if you're taking notes, here's the very first principle that I think we can learn. And this is only for Christians. If you're not a Christian, you're off the hook for right now. But if you are a Christian or you claim to be a Christian, then you need to live your life in such a way as to receive the imperishable crown of inheriting the kingdom of God. How do you live your life? In such a way as to receive the imperishable crown of inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, wait, time out here. I thought we've already received the kingdom of God. Yes, you have. If you've received it, then live like it. That's the point he's making. If you are a Christian, live like it. If you are God's holy people, live like it. Become what you are. And how do we live that life? How do we live life in such a way as to receive the imperishable crown of inheriting the kingdom of God? Second part of your taking notes is this. By diligently exercise self-discipline and self-control. 
diligently exercise self-discipline and self-control. As Christians, we should be people of self-discipline and self-control. And again, we don't exercise self-discipline and self-control to accomplish anything because what Jesus has already accomplished is enough. He has secured our salvation, but we do that in light of the salvation he has secured for us. We're basically becoming what we are. And I know that is a tension that confuses so many Christians because so many times we want to turn to self-effort. And the two extremes is self-effort, no effort. And what does the gospel say? You put all your effort in in light of what Christ has accomplished for you. Uh, Paul is going to continue and he's going to offer a compelling example of why he's urging the church in Corinth to run the race with, with self-discipline and self-control. Here's the example he, he, he basically gives to the warning as he continues in his warnings. He says this, now I don't want you to, chapter 10 verse 1, now I don't want you to be unaware brothers and sisters that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They they all ate the same spiritual food they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that f- that followed them and that rock was christ nevertheless god was not pleased with most of them so they were struck down in the wilderness you see paul gives an example of how israel in the old testament failed to run the race with self-discipline and self-control and God was not pleased with them, and God destroyed them. And the point that Paul is making is, think about all the spiritual benefits that Israel has received. God delivered them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. They saw all the miracles that God did in delivering them from Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea. They saw how God led them by a cloud during the the, the day and a pillar of fire by night. They saw how God provided water gushing out of the rock and bread coming down from, from heaven. And yet, despite all of these spiritual blessings they enjoyed and how God provided with them, they continued in their sin and God was not pleased with them and he destroyed all of the adults in the wilderness except Caleb and Joshua. And Paul's main point is that most of Israel was disqualified even though the people experienced remarkable blessings from God. So in other words, despite them experiencing all these remarkable blessings from God, what did they do? They continued in their sin. I think a phrase that is helpful Despite God delivering them out of Egypt, Egypt still remained in them. Because what did they want to do? We want to go back to Egypt. We want to live like we did in Egypt. So what does that text do to us? It gives us a warning. And that warning we need to take serious that even though we can experience remarkable blessings from Christ, We need to continue to persevere. We need to continue to exercise self-discipline and self-control so that we will not likewise be disqualified. In other words, what's that phrase, disqualify? It's not losing something, but rather it is something that is not standing the test of time. 
And then he reminds them from Israel's sin. Look, look, look at verse 6. Look at what Israel did. And then he commands them not to do it. He says, now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Like notice, Paul gives four commands, and almost every command, he compares it to what Israel did, and he either gives a scriptural reference or the result of their sin. So the first one, he says, don't become idolaters like Israel, who ate and drank and partied, as it is written in Scripture. Don't commit sexual immorality like Israel did. And what happened to them? God killed them. Don't commit, uh, don't test Christ like Israel. What happened to them? Because God destroyed them by snakes. Don't grumble like Israel. Because God sent the destroyer to destroy them. Why did these things take place? Why were they recorded? To serve as an example and warning of what happens when you continue in your sin. Destruction. Now, Paul, knowing the heart of men, or maybe he knows my heart, because we read the Old Testament, and what do we think of the people of God in the Old Testament? Man, these guys are fools. Like, what is wrong with them? And yet, Paul knows our heart. And this is what he says in verse 12 as he offers another warning. Look at, look at verse 12 here. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to, to fall. In other words, the Christian must not assume that the race is essentially over. That they don't need to be vigilant in exercising self-discipline and self-control. I'm secure in Christ. I'm just going to cruise through this life. No. You have to constantly exercise self-discipline and self-control. You have to constantly put your sin to death. Because if you don't, what's going to happen? That sin is like cancer and is going to spread. And I know for most people are like, there's no way I won't be disqualified. There's no way I'll fall into the sin. There's no way I'll ever do that. Famous last words, right? And yet, what does sin do? We need to be careful. We need to watch so we do not fall because sin will make you do things you thought you would never do. It will take you to places you thought you would never go and it will end up with more destruction than you thought you would ever end up with. Again, nobody wakes up and say, you know what, today I'm going to ruin my marriage. You know what, today I'm just going to ruin my life. You think Adam and Eve woke up and say, you know, today we're, we're just going to rebel against God and just take the entire creation order and just spin it into chaos. What do you think about that, Eve? Good plan? Okay, let's go ahead and do that. <laughs> no! I guarantee you they're probably thinking we would never disobey God. We would never rebel against God. We'll never do that thing. I, I, I will never have an affair. I will never be unfaithful to my spouse. 
And yet what happens? We let our guard down. We don't exercise self-discipline and self-control. We're not actively putting sin to death. We're not actively confessing it and bringing our sin to light. We start to entertain one little sin that needs to another, and that sin starts to take such deep root, it makes us do things we thought we would never do. And sin destroys, and that is what happened to Israel. And their story is an example and a warning to all of us. Be careful. You think you stand? You think you're better than others? Watch yourself. You might fall as well. So what do you do? Exercise self-discipline, self-control. Paul provides caution and then also encouragement. Look Look at verse 13 here. He says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. In other words, every temptation we experience is common to humanity. Why? Because we have a sinful nature and we live in the presence of sin. In other words, let me tell you now, there is no way while you're living here in this fallen world that you will avoid temptation. You will be tempted. No matter what you do or the boundaries you put your place, whether you're running to the hills or running to the desert to avoid temptation, you will find yourself being tempted. Um, I wish I remembered this guy's name. It was a, a monk who was struggling um, with sexual temptation and he joined the monastery to escape it and it still didn't work. And eventually he fled to the desert, to the desolate place where there was nobody else. And he writes down, this is what he writes. He says, even when I find myself in the desert avoiding all temptation, I constantly find myself dreaming of women dancing around me. Why? Sinful nature. Sinful heart, sinful man. In other words, so the first thing Paul is saying is, look, you are going to be tempted. You're going to face temptation. That is part of the Christian life. But I'm so grateful that the verse doesn't stop here. Here's the encouragement part. So think about this. You are going to face temptation. You're going to be tempted. There's no way of escaping it. Even if you build yourself a village filled with righteous people, so-called, you're going to be tempted. So what do you do? Look at the second part, and I just love this. But God is faithful. God is faithful. What do you do when you face temptation? You remember that God is faithful. And how is God faithful? He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will always provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. As I was thinking about this verse in my mind, um, I had notes, but I think I might be wrong in my notes, so I'm just going to wing it a little bit. Like, if God is faithful... And he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. 
I'm almost thinking like, okay, how is he faithful and how does he allow me to overcome temptation? There's two ways. The first way is through the cross of Jesus Christ. If you think about what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross for you, not only has Jesus paid for the penalty of your sin, but he also has set you free from the bondages of sin. In other words, you were enslaved to sin, but now you've been set free. You're no longer a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to Christ. In other words, what that means in, in plain language is before Christ, you could not say no to sin. You're going to continue to sin. But now after Christ, doesn't mean you're no longer going to sin, but now you have the ability to say no to sin. Because of God's faithfulness through the work of his son on the cross, now you can resist temptation. Now you can look at that temptation and say, I don't owe you anything anymore. I do not belong to you anymore. I do not have to be crushed by the guilt and by the shame and by the lies that I'm believing, saying, well, that's just who I am. No, it's not who I am anymore. I now belong to Christ. I've been set free, and I can say no to sin. And another way that God has empowered us to say no to sin is not just Jesus Christ, but also the Spirit of Christ living inside of us. Like we have the Spirit of God who lives inside of us, that strengthens us, that empowers us, that convicts us, that says, if you continue down that route, it's going to lead to destruction. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins. Like this is how God is faithful. He gives you his son that sets you free and he gives you his spirit that empowers and strengthens you. And there's no temptation that's going to overwhelm you. You can say no to it. And I think one of the lies that we as Christians believe is as we give in to our temptation, the lie is this. Well, I've been struggling it for a long time. I might as well just continue in it because it's not going to get any better. At least if I can just contain it and don't let it spread, at the end, hopefully God will deliver me at the end. That's a lie. Because has Christ not delivered you from that? Has he not put his spirit inside of you? Has he not given you the power to say no? And even in your failure, does he not forgive you? You don't have to be crushed by your guilt and shame. Does he not give you a new identity and remind you, you don't owe that sin anything anymore? This is how God is faithful. And I, I love... In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, He will strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Like, don't you just love reading the warnings and taking the warnings serious and then love reading the encouragements? Like, what is God going to do? Strengthen you. Halfway? <laughs> Two-thirds? Three-quarters? No, he will strengthen you through the end. And he is so committed in keeping you blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is faithful. He called you into fellowship with his son. 
which means he's certainly going to do that. So that means we can fight sin. We can exercise self-discipline and self-control in light of the strength that God provides revealed through his faithfulness. So what do we do when we are faced with temptation? We remember that God is faithful. We remember we can say no to sin because of the work of of Jesus on the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's the third thing. What do we do when we face temptation? Look at verse 14. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. In other words, as I can quote the famous movie, run for us, run. Do not entertain it. Do not think you can handle it. And I think the run is maybe not strong enough. That's why he says flee, a.k.a. run as if your life depends on it. So as we wrap it up, I was going to try to to finish um, all the way to verse 22, but it just is not going to happen. We'll talk about it next week. Here's the application for us. As a Christian, live like you are a Christian. In other words, persevere with self-discipline and self-control. The warnings that we've read are warnings that are real, are warnings that we need to take serious, and they are ways that God used to enable us to continue. We have to remember the grace that we have received strengthens us and motivates us to complete the race. God didn't just say, hey, here you are, Run the race, have at it, finish it, do your best. No. He sets you free. He encourages you to work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling, to run the race, exercising self-discipline, self-control. And what does he do as you run? He strengthens. He empowers. He encourages. So when you fall, what does he do? He picks you up and he says, run. Don't give up. Trust me, I am faithful. Believe in what my son has accomplished for you. Persevere through the end. And I just want to finish with this verse uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57 to 58. He says this, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in a sense, we already have the victory We already have the imperishable crown, the eternal life. If that is true, he says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, because you've already received the crown, because you've already received the victory, the victory is yours. It's guaranteed. There's assurance in it. What do you do? You run. You remain steadfast, immovable, disciplining your body, exercising self-control, constantly putting sin to death in light of the victory you have received in Christ. Here's my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, family, loved ones. I've seen too many Christians give up in their fight against sin. Don't give up. 
Do not forget the salvation that he has accomplished for you. You've been set free. You've been made new. You belong to him. You're a son and daughter of the king. Live like it. And when you fail and and you mess up, what can you do? You can confess your sins. And what does the Bible say? He's going to beat you. He's going to hold it over you. No, he is faithful. He's just to forgive you of all of your sins. What a wonderful Savior that has accomplished a victory for us and yet encourages us to run and enables us to run. Let's not give up. Life is hard out there. I know we're faced with more temptation than ever before. We're discouraged because we're constantly surrounded by the world and the world is whispering all kinds of lies to us. We're seeing bad examples of how Christians are. Let's look to Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles and hinders us. And let us run this race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let us not grow weary, and let us persevere to the end. And as we persevere, let us remember that he is faithful, and that he who began a good work is going to finish it. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your warnings and your promises. Lord, help us to take the warnings serious and help us to, as we read these warnings, look into the mirror, look in our hearts and ask ourselves, are we truly Christian? Are we living like we are Christian? Are we resting and trusting in your promises? Are we constantly going to battle against our sinful nature and putting it to death? And are we constantly and actively putting on the new nature you have given us? Lord, help us. As we continue to pray, I just want to give you some time to meditate on the question I gave you in the beginning. The question that I think all of us have to constantly ask, like, if I'm a Christian, am I living like one? Am I putting my body under self-discipline and self-control? Am I running with a goal? Am I boxing with a goal to win the prize? Or is it just aimless? What sin in your life have you allowed to creep in that is taking over that you need to start fighting for real and putting to death? What sin is it that you need to confess? What lie are you believing? And as we wrestle with the questions, 
we come to the part of our service communion where we really see the gospel in visible display because here what's at the table we're reminded that in our struggle against sin the provision that God has made through his son his body given to us his blood shed for us the penalty and the price has been paid for the shackles have fallen off the jail cell is open let us receive in faith and let us walk out fixing our eyes on him so as we distribute these elements like i don't want us to fall into the trap uh, that i need to be clean in order to participate yeah the bible says confess your sins but the way i want you to look at this table is in your wrestling and in your confession of sin be reminded of the provision that God has made through his son Jesus. The body given to you, his blood shed for you and the new covenant you have in him. So let's go ahead and distribute these elements. Did everybody receive the elements? Think about God's wonderful provision for you through his son Jesus Christ. His body has been given to you. Eat it in remembrance of him. The blood of Christ that has been shed for you, the new covenant that you have in him. Drink it in remembrance of him. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you in the provision that you have made for us, the salvation that you have accomplished for us. Well, thank you that even in our unfaithfulness, you are faithful. Lord, strengthen us. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to remind ourselves with the gospel promises we have in you. Help us to exercise self-discipline and self-control as we fight all the temptations that we have in this world. And help us to, to see and realize this wonderful crown, this wonderful salvation, this wonderful eternal life, this inheritance that we have received. And even though we haven't fully realized it, that is waiting for us. Strengthen us, Lord. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship our Lord and Savior.